0: critical mass territory here, so I'm going to go ahead and get us started if that's okay. Um, Really looking forward to this conversation today, and I really appreciate all those who are are tuning in for this because I think it's an incredibly important conversation. Um, Before I get too much into it, I just want to thank the National uh, Iranian American Council or NIAC for sponsoring this event. Um, I think it's an incredibly, again, important conversation. Um, And it's one that often happens, um, I think, siloed, uh, sort of context by context. And so it's an incredible privilege to be here with other professionals who work in very difficult circumstances and who have a lot of experience to share on these issues. So um, a big thank you to NIAC, to our panelists, and to everybody tuning in today. Um, We're really looking forward to a great conversation. Um, just quickly, uh, I'll introduce myself. I'm your host, your moderator today. I'm Dan Jasper with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, my role there is the Asia Public Education and Advocacy Coordinator. And most of my work is centered on U.S.-North Korea as well as U.S.-China relations. And in recent years, my work has broadened out a little bit to include sanctions as well. And uh, we've worked with a number of organizations to help sort of create spaces for organizations to start pooling their expertise and bringing folks together. And NIAC has been a huge, huge help on that. Um, I'll I'll be guiding us through this conversation. Um, You know, just quickly, it's worth mentioning that the topic of our conversation today is sanctioning civilians, the human cost of U.S. economic warfare. So central to this discussion is the issue of U.S. policies on sanctions and economic cohesion on a global scale and its impact on civilian populations in targeted countries. Uh, So we're gonna hopefully make this a little bit more conversational than normal panels. Um, It's important, I think, just because we're dealing with so many contexts for folks to give us a little bit of an overview of what's happening in each context. Um, So I'm gonna quickly introduce our speakers, uh, read through their bios so you know who we have on the horn here. And then we're gonna turn to them to just give us a brief three minute introduction um, sort of the current situation and the relationship with the United States, how sanctions fit into their work, and then how their work intersects with all of this as well. Um, so just quickly, uh, I'll start by with Arash, uh, excuse me, Arash Azizada, who's a writer and photographer and community organizer based in Los Angeles, California. A child of Afghan refugees, Arash, Arash is a deeply committed to dismantling white supremacy and building equitable communities. Last year, he co-founded Afghans for a Better Tomorrow, an Afghan American community and advocacy organization aiming to bring transformative change to Afghans in the United States and beyond. He has led evacuation and rapid response coordination efforts in the wake of America's military withdrawal from Afghanistan. And Arash has written for the New York Times Newsweek and has been featured on Full Frontal with Samantha B, NPR and Vice News. Welcome Arash, we're really pleased to have you with us. We also have Dr. Aisha Juman, Dr. Juman is the president of Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, has over 30 years of experience in public health and is currently working on as an independent consultant coordinating health related projects in Yemen. She was with the US Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention from 1995 to 2008 and served as an assistant professor at the Rollins School of Public Health Epidemiology Department uh, at Emory University. Aisha also worked in her native home Yemen with uh, UNFPA and UNDP, participated in health-related program development, evaluation, and training activities for Peace Corps, was an assistant professor on the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Sanaa University, and consulted on research projects for various ministries, USAID, Save the Children, and the Dutch Embassy. She has a PhD in epidemiology from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and her master's in public health from Emory University. She did ask me to shorten her bio, but I wanted to read the whole thing because I think it's quite impressive. um, And I think it's all relevant to our conversation today. So welcome, Dr. Juman. Uh, We also have Dr. Francisco Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is a Venezuelan economist and currently a director and founder of Oil for Venezuela, a nonprofit organization focused on finding solution to Venezuela's humanitarian crisis. He received an MA and PhD in economics from Harvard. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez has taught economics and Latin American studies at the University of Maryland College Park, the Instituto, excuse my Spanish here, De Estado Superiores de Administración, and Westland University. He has held prominent positions in the public and private sector and international organizations, including head of the economic and financial advisory of the Venezuelan National Assembly from 2000 to 2004. He was the head of the research team at the United Nations uh, Human Development Report Office from 2008 to 2011. He is currently uh, the International Affairs Fellow in International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Rodriguez is a frequent contributor to several publications such as Foreign Affairs, Financial Times, New York Times, and Foreign Policy, among others. He has published more than 50 research papers and academic outlets, including the American Journal uh, and the Journal of Economic Growth. So we're very pleased to have you, Dr. Rodriguez. And last but not least, uh, we have uh, NIAC's own research director, Dr. Asal, Rasa, excuse me, Asal Rod. Asal earned a PhD in history from the University of California, Irvine in 2018. Her PhD research focused on modern Iran, and she has had forthcoming book with Cambridge University Press titled The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Her writing can be seen in the Newsweek, the national interest, the independent foreign policy and more. And she has appeared as commentator on the BBC World, BBC Persian, Al Jazeera and NPR. So welcome, Dr. Rod. We have an incredible lineup, as you just witnessed here. So I'm really excited to jump into the conversation. And again, I want to start by just sort of setting the context. And if I could, again, just ask our panelists to focus on three things, uh, the current situation in the country, the current country's relationship with the United States how sanctions fit in and how your work intersects with all these things. Um, If we can start with Arash uh, Azizada and you can tell us a little bit about what's happening in Afghanistan.
1: Uh, Thank you Daniel and thank you to to Nayak for for hosting all of us and and giving us the spaces to uh, talk about something that's in Afghanistan specifically is significantly impacting uh, 38 million people and to start off this conversation I think we have to acknowledge that the United States has been party to conflict uh been involved either in a proxy war or directly uh been involved in conflict in Afghanistan for the past 42 years and to give context I'm 34 years old this conflict is, conflict is roughly has been roughly 10 10 years uh, uh older than, than myself and so this has been going on for for multiple generations um, and what we have seen specifically in the past 20 years is that the United States has made Afghanistan and the nation state that it attempted to build and the institutions that it attempted to build in Afghanistan heavily foreign, dependent on foreign aid, um, uh, roughly 75% uh, of the GDP. Uh, and, and basically, you know, I, I went to visit Afghanistan in 2019. There's not many places you can go, not many ministries you can see, uh, pretty much Most uh, institutions or projects are funded by USAID, the United States government, the European Union, Japan or or any of these other countries. And so we had a nation state that was heavily not just influenced, but coerced uh, by uh, Western donors and the primary donor being obviously the the United States. Uh, And so what we saw in the wake of... um, uh, the U.S. military withdrawal, which happened essentially in August of 2021, uh, when the Taliban uh, took control of the entire country, is that the United States did essentially three things. Um, the first one was an end to the uh, an immediate end to all the foreign aid that was being poured into the country. Um, that was to the tune of at least eight eight and a half million dollars, uh, if not more, every year. Um, And so that faucet got turned off almost overnight. The second item to that is being the immediate uh, freezing of of sovereign Afghan assets. Uh, That's something that's been in the news and the Biden administration has made some controversial decisions. That is money that belongs to the Afghan people uh, that is usually used by the central bank of of most sovereign nations to inject liquidity and, and maintain the basic functions of the economy. That money Sits now frozen at the New York Federal Reserve uh, and some European European banks um, as well. And then the third item is is what we're you know discussing today, uh, which is the U.S. sanctions and um, American sanctions on Afghanistan have been. Um, have, have been placed on Afghanistan for, for a very long time. These are sanctions that are either placed on, you know, the Taliban and the Haqqani network. Well, the Haqqani network and the Taliban control the entirety uh, of the country now, uh, which has has meant a lot of complications when you're thinking when in July, you know, the United States was paying, uh, in July of 2021, the United States was paying for um, the um uh salaries of of, for example national soldiers of the afghan army Uh, and then now you have thousands of thousands of soldiers who are on being unpaid uh, who don't have any jobs anymore and so that now takes us to the situation currently uh which is that 22 million people are deeply food insecure the pocket most pockets in the country are uh, either one or two steps away from from famine uh, 1 million Afghan children are on the verge of uh, death uh, and we have seen a report that came out of roughly two months ago so that was in, that was in March of, of, of this year that at least 13,000 uh, Afghan children had already died from either malnutrition, uh, or starvation or negligence. And so what we are seeing is obviously that the Taliban is deeply responsible for, for this uh, incompetence, this this mess, the fact that Afghans are starving. But the main culprit here is the, is the United States, which has the most autonomy, the most agency over, over that country still. And so the Biden administration has claimed that it has ended this war. Um, but, you know, I think before August, we were thinking and brainstorming as a community and advocacy organization, you know, how do we how do we end the war and how do we make Afghans have agency? How do we put Afghans in control of their own faith and uh, their own uh, sovereign borders? Uh, And now we are trying to figure out how to end America's uh, economic strangulation uh, of Afghanistan. And obviously that work kind of uh, brings this group together because what the United States is doing to Afghanistan is happening in other places, uh, whether that's in Iran, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, or elsewhere across the country. Um, So I'll I'll leave it at that. There's much more to discuss in terms of um, how America's... um, enabling this economic strangulation uh, towards the Afghan people
0: yeah thank you and i'm looking forward to digging into that i think you know some of the themes that you brought up are likely to be recurring throughout our conversations including you know the longevity of these conflicts and the idea of unended war um, i think we'll see that quite a bit thank you rasha um, now i quickly want to turn to dr Juman uh, if you could give us your context.
2: Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to speak today. Well, I want to start by, and and Arash, everything you mentioned is is very familiar in Yemen as well. Um, Yemen imports about 90% of its needs, whether it's medicine, fuel, or or food. Uh, Yemen has been under U.S. sanctions in addition to U.S.-enabled blockade by the Saudi-led coalition uh, since 2015. So with that, especially on the port of data. With that, those two things have done are, uh, one is the destruction of the economy uh, in Yemen, two is push millions of people into poverty, and three is we have mass starvation with 16.2 million people in Yemen are uh, food insecurity back. ICRC just published today that there are 20 million people in Yemen who are in need of humanitarian assistance, there are 5 million women and children in Yemen today who are acutely malnourished. Of course, the psychological and development impact of the starvation are going to be something that Yemen will have to deal with for many generations to come. Of course, and this is also going to be true in many countries, transfers of funds to Yemen is restricted. We only have one bank that is intermediary so we can send money to Yemen. Uh, People who want to send money to Yemen individuals uh, are not allowed to send more than $2,000 a month. For an organization like ours, because we are, um, I started Yemen Relief Reconstruction Foundation in response to the mass starvation of the Yemeni people. It's very challenging for us to send money to Yemen. Uh, And we, now we are able to send it through one bank in Germany. We lose 4% of the money we send because it's in Europe. Uh, there are ships, uh, to data that are delayed uh, after they get the UN inspection, um, and some of them just give up and, and leave because they are taken to uh, a port in Saudi Arabia. They stay there, um, don't know how long, sometimes they'll stay there for a year, and after being there for a certain period of time, some ships just give in and, and leave without discharging in Yemen. Shipping companies refuse to go to Yemen Uh, right now. There are very few that go and it's extremely expensive. And those who do stay and eventually dock in Yemen, uh, Yemenis have to pay the extra charge of of the delays. Um, I wanna share something from the UN uh, inspection mechanism. Here it shows uh, the number of ships of fuel ships that went into Yemen in 2021. And you can see it's 10% of what the fuel Yemen needs in fuel. That's in 2021. I also wanna show this slide. It shows the number of containers. This is in 2016, which is a year after the war. There were about 40,000 containers that got into Yemen uh, in 2016. In 2021, 1,600 were allowed to get into Yemen that's about 4% of the containers that need to get into Yemen. So you can see with all of that that the situation in Yemen is extremely dire. I also support Arash is that everybody thinks that um, humanitarian assistance and UN agencies and the humanitarian community can support a population of 13 million people. They cannot because we know from this year, for example, Uh, the donations to Yemen are one third of what Yemen needs uh, to get the work done in terms of humanitarian assistance. The other thing also, which is Arash touched on, is the funds go to UN agencies and humanitarian organizations. So that basically means that the infrastructure, the national infrastructure is deemed non-workable. They just destroy it basically. Uh, The Yemeni Population, especially civil servants, they have not been paid salaries since 2016, when the national bank was moved out of Sanaa. So there are just a lot of that's going on. I just want to touch on one more thing. There is a truce in Yemen right now uh, that was uh, started on April second for two months. And guess what? In the negotiation for the truce, the Saudi allowed said they will allow 18 ships of fuel to get into Yemen. And they will also allow twice a week flights from Sana'a airport that's been shut by the Saudis since 2016, they will allow two flights a week. Uh, Six weeks into the truce, we have only two more weeks, only two flights were allowed to go get out of Sana'a. So that's just basically what the Yemeni uh, people are experiencing. I call them hostages. Uh, The Yemeni people are held hostages to the U.S. and Saudi coalition. And I'll stop here.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for those points. I mean, really, really important stuff here. And it's it, it, a lot of it sounds very familiar to the North Korea context. And actually, some of the data looks very, very similar, unfortunately. Um, and I'll, I'll look forward to asking you a little bit more about this dynamic between aid groups giving more money um, and the infrastructure being neglected. And, and that's really sort of where Uh, security comes from. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to turn to Dr. Rodriguez for Venezuela context.
3: Well, uh, good afternoon. Thanks, Daniel, for that introduction. Thanks, Nayak, for organizing uh, this talk. Um, Venezuela has suffered the largest economic collapse in modern Latin American history. uh, And it's also one of the largest collapses in world economic history. Its per capita income has shrunk by 72% since 2012, which is the equivalent of nearly four Great Depressions poverty has risen to 94%, one fourth of the population is undernourished and the country has suffered the third longest hyperinflation documented in world history. Over the past 4 years, together with the team that I direct at the Oil for Venezuela Foundation, we produced research investigating to what extent have sanctions contributed to this crisis. The answer is that economic sanctions have made a significant contribution, particularly through their impact on the country's oil industry. And this is a result of the fact that sanctions were primarily aimed at hurting Venezuela's oil industry. This is well documented now in uh, memoirs written, for example, by former National Security Advisor John Bolton, uh, by former Defense Secretary uh, Esper, uh, who have, among other things, recounted that uh, sanctions were among the most moderate options adopted by the Trump administration, which actually uh, discussed uh, bombing Venezuelan oil refineries as part of their attempt to bring down the government of Nicolás Maduro. Now, I want to share uh, a number of slides from our research uh, very quickly to give you an idea of the magnitudes that we're talking about here. So uh, this is Venezuela's per capita output. from 1950 to 2020, Uh, and here what you can see is that the decline that we are seeing uh, over the course of the past uh, eight years uh, is unlike anything that we had seen previously in uh, Venezuelan uh, economic history, even though the country had had poor growth performance in prior periods. Um, It's not only that, it is actually, uh, as I already mentioned, one of the worst collapses experienced by any country uh, in peacetime. It's actually the second largest collapse since 1950, experienced by a country uh, in peacetime and the sixth largest worldwide. Um, And when we start trying to understand what is it that drives this collapse, what we find behind it uh, is the collapse of the country's oil revenue. So oil accounted for 96% of the country's exports prior to the crisis, and oil uh, revenues, which were approximately $100 billion a year in 2012, have fallen to uh, less than $10 billion a year uh, in 2020-21. Now, uh, you may hear uh, among uh, some of the discussion on Venezuela, uh, some people claim that uh, the country's crisis began before sanctions and that therefore sanctions are not uh the cause of the crisis and this involves very fallacious and misleading uh reasoning uh, among other things because uh there are, uh, economic and social phenomena are multi-causal so uh the crisis may per- may have been driven by poor economic policies by mis- ...management by corruption, uh, and sanctions have also made a contribution. There's no contradiction between saying that there are several factors that have an impact on a country's crisis. Uh, But aside from that, because the crisis and the collapse in GDP that began in around 2013-14 had to do with declining oil prices, and that's what you see in this slide uh b- between 2012 and 2016 oil prices fell from about hundred dollars a barrel to around 30 dollars a barrel um and that drove a significant decline in o- oil exports which impacted the economy as any economy that loses two-thirds of its export revenue in the space of three years is going to be severely impacted but as oil prices began to recover in 2017, uh, you do not see a recovery in oil revenues. Why? Because oil production was declining. So in our research, we've looked carefully at the determinants of Venezuela's oil production. Uh, This is how oil production performed uh, from 2008 on. So we see from 2008 to 2015, uh, a period of stability in oil production. Uh, Oil production begins declining Uh, in 2016, early 2016. Now, this actually happened in a lot of countries because this is the period during which oil prices were also falling. Uh, So many oil producers would cut production given that that oil was being sold for less than 70% uh, the price that it was able to receive uh, just one year earlier. Um, uh, However, as oil prices began to stabilize and recover, Uh, Venezuela was hit by the first financial sanctions on the oil industry, which barred it from obtaining new financing, which barred it from obtaining dividends from its offshore activities uh, and which uh, barred it from uh, restructuring its debt. And there, uh, which is when oil pressure started to stabilize in other countries, we see oil production, the drop in oil production accelerate in Venezuela. Then we have the 2019 oil sanctions which barred any type of oil trade between Venezuela and the U.S., we see another significant impact there. And we see uh, the 2020 uh, secondary sanctions on foreign oil partners, uh, which had also a significant effect. Uh, There's more detailed research, some of it which looks at firms uh, producing in the Venezuelan oil industry in different sectors, and particularly those firms that had access to finance, prior to the 2017 sanctions and those that did not have access and finds a significant difference between them. Again, consistent with uh, evidence of the impact of sanctions. Um, Now, something that I I wanna point out and a lot of what we do at All for Venezuela is think through what should be the design of an institutional framework that uh, would serve as an alternative to uh the current situation of course you could think well maybe they should just lift all sanctions and that uh would uh that that in many cases would would be an adequate solution in the case of venezuela because the government recognized by the u.s uh is the government headed by former legislator juan guaidó uh the maduro government would not have access to any funds uh, in the US, nor would it be able to sell oil because the proceeds from that oil would belong to uh, the uh, state, the board of the state, or would be banished by the board of the state-owned oil company that has been appointed by Juan Guaido. Uh, so therefore, what we have focused is on, um, Designing uh, proposals for negotiated agreements between the parts to the political conflict uh, that can be brought forward, for example, in the context of the current ongoing talks between uh, these sides in Mexico, uh, so that some type of co-governance agreement over the oil revenues, with the adequate international supervision to ensure that they go to address the country's humanitarian crisis, uh, can be implemented, and the country. Uh, and particularly, the country's most vulnerable population can be protected from the collateral effect of, of the country's political conflict.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that, Dr. Rodriguez. I think some of that data is really important to see and is really quite striking. Um, and I look forward to having some further conversations about the, the current diplomacy happening around uh, Venezuela right now. Uh, I want to turn to Dr. Rod for some context in Iran.
4: Uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you uh, to all of our panelists for joining us today. Um, and I think that this conversation, I'll be brief about my context because I do want to get us, I want to get us into the conversation that we have together. But I think what's interesting in, in listening to this is that you see patterns, right? The the I the essential thing that we're discussing today is that the humanitarian impact of US economic and sanctions policies, the fact that they hurt ordinary civilians, is not an exception it's actually the rule, right? This is why we're seeing in so many different contexts that this is repeatedly what's happening. Now in the context of Iran, uh, the US and Iran have been um, adversaries or have had an adversarial relationship for decades. Um, That adversarial relationship experienced uh, a breakthrough, a diplomatic breakthrough in 2015 when uh, the US, uh, the P5 plus one and Iran entered into the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal, In which Iran promised to uh, allow unprecedented international inspections of its nuclear program in exchange for economic relief of sanctions. Um, Now, for those of us who know, in 2018, the Trump administration uh, withdrew from the deal and reimposed sanctions and actually expanded sanctions on Iran, uh, making it at the time the most sanctioned country in the world. In fact, Iran was the most sanctioned country in the world up until uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now Russia is the most sanctioned country in the world. Iran is number two. Um, what those sanctions have done in terms of their impact on the Iranian civilian population, there's no question to it. And there's, there's a, a tendency for advocates of sanctions to say things like, well, humanitarian goods are exempt. They absolutely are on paper. On paper, they are exempt. And so we have a difference between de facto and de jour. What happens in actuality what happens on the ground is that those essential goods the flow of those goods into the country are impeded do not take my word for it take the word of our president joe biden who said this himself in a statement in april of 2020 specifically talking about iran while he acknowledged the humanitarian exemptions he also acknowledged the fact that the reality on the ground and this was you know during the beginning of the pandemic that the reality on the ground was that it, us sanctions were impeding the flow of essential goods to understand the sort of uh, the way that U.S. policy works vis-a-vis sanctions, if you look at the case of Iran, Iran was a country that early on was one of the first countries that was very hard hit by uh, the COVID pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and when you know, the United Nations, when human rights organizations, when uh, WHO, when all of these international entities were calling for an easing of sanctions in light of the pandemic, not only for the humanitarian purposes of the civilians in that particular targeted country, but also because it was a, it required a global reaction. It required us to combat it globally, and therefore we needed to cooperate globally. The U.S. actually doubled down and expanded sanctions on Iran. Uh, This was under the Trump administration. The Biden administration, despite entering into negotiations with Iran to revive the nuclear deal, has essentially maintained that policy, has maintained those sanctions um, in an ongoing pandemic. And and now with the uh, war in Ukraine, as we are experiencing in the U.S., imagine right now in the United States, I mean, gas prices are exorbitantly high. Uh, We're experiencing inflation ordinary working class Americans are suffering. Now imagine all of the impacts that are happening globally, but you are one of these countries that we are talking about and the most powerful economy in the world on top of everything else is sanctioning you. So now imagine how much that exacerbates those problems that, that already exist. Um, there are statistics that say millions of middle-class Iranians have been forced to poverty in recent years. They've experienced hyperinflation um, that have caused you know the most vulnerable people in that society to be affected. While the, the, the supposed targets of these sanctions remain relatively unscathed, it is the most vulnerable, the working class, the poor, uh, women-led households, uh, disabled people. All of these groups are the ones who are most impacted by sanctions. Um, and so I will leave it at that as we continue to have our discussion.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Rod. And I I think those are some incredibly important points. And I think you're pulling out a lot of things that um, are are commonalities between these circumstances. Um, And before we get into the sort of conversation portion of this, I wanna give a quick overview of the context in North Korea. Um, Quickly, I think many have probably heard the, the latest news reports that there has been an outbreak of COVID in the country. Um, this is really important, I think. Um, and again, it's important to have context here, right? And I want, just want to quickly remind our viewers that the United States and North Korea are in a state of war and have been for over 70 years. Uh, we'll, you know, you'll remember that the Korean War ended in 1953 or the act of fighting came to an end with a ceasefire, but there was never a peace treaty. And so when we start to uh, talk about things like the missile tests uh, happening right now, which is often put in relationship to humanitarian aid, uh, it's important to keep that context in mind uh, because I think a lot of Americans look at that and are very confused as to why there are missile tests at this point. Um, And that is largely because we have been frozen in a state of war for over 70 years. Uh, Going back to the COVID context, um, this is an incredibly vulnerable population. I think North Korea has uh, their healthcare infrastructure has been ranked 193 out of 195 um, shortly after the outbreak in Wuhan, North Korea closed its borders to travel and to cargo. Um, some, tr- some cargo has been allowed into the country, but last I looked, I think um, it's reached maybe about 38% to pre-COVID uh, levels. Uh, so supplies are running low, and by the co- government's own admission, uh, there are significant food security problems as well. So we have a population that is food insecure, supplies are running low, um, and is now dealing with an outbreak of COVID. This is this is incredibly important in the case that I actually just made to U.S. government officials right before this call was that, you know, we have to treat this as a global security issue. Um, we have to separate the government actions from ordinary individuals. Not only is that the morally right thing to do, but it's also the strategically right thing to do, right? Because we have to see this as, um, as a national security issue as well. Because if, you know, COVID runs rapid in North Korea, uh, there's plenty of chances for mutations and different variants. Quickly, I just wanna give a quick context. And I think I've heard from many of our panelists that 2017, 2016 time period is very critical for a lot of these places. And especially with North Korea, that was the case. Um, it, it was. It's worth noting that, you know, humanitarian operations have been there since about 1980. And in 2017, we were basically, you know, slowly closed down, and it got to the point where it was um, very difficult to send aid. Uh, UN resolutions went so far as to mention things like paper clips and spoons, and so you had situations where there was cargo building up at ship uh, at ports. And some of it even had the correct paperwork, but because of miscommunication and customs officials on the ground, not quite understanding the the regulations, things were being held up. And so you had instances where patients were in surgery without anesthesia, people were going without malnutrition programs, um, all because of basic paperwork. Um, Now, while some of that has been sorted out, it's worth noting that, you know, that was only months before the pandemic hit. And we found ourselves in a a moment where the existing health, international health cooperation that existed in North Korea was basically um, damaged uh, and didn't have time to rebuild itself prior to the pandemic. And I really personally think that that may play a role in terms of them accepting international aid. So we are in a precarious situation. And I think that um, in, in terms of the United States and their position on this, um, they really need to, to start altering regulations because humanitarian organizations aren't going to need to respond quickly to this situation. So I'll stop there with the, the North Korea context. And I want to enter sort of the more conversational parts of our uh, panel today. Um, and we have a number of questions uh, that we can go through. And I think we're, we're probably going a little bit further in time than I was hoping. Um, but I think I want to pick up on this point that Asal made around uh, the impact on, on humans and and who really bears the cost of sanctions. Um, I, I wanna to turn to Arash if that's okay. And I wanna ask about what, who is bearing the, the cost and burden uh, in Afghanistan right now? Because I've heard some very troubling reports of what people are needing to do right now inside the country in order to sort of stay afloat.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a variety of different stories I can share that shows the level of deprivation that's that's happening in Afghanistan, but you know, Just looking back at the history of sanctions that's been placed specifically on the Taliban and and the Haqqani government, which is essentially the de facto authorities in Afghanistan, those uh, sanctions were in place. And from the day that those sanctions were in place, you know, the Taliban had very little control of the country. And now we see that it's actually has more authority it has more uh, responsibility and has more recognition throughout the diplomatic recognition throughout the world. Uh, than ever before, so you know that 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 is the that is the level of uh, impacts sanctions has had specifically on the Taliban. Now, who's bearing the real cost of that? Uh, it's it's the Afghan people, and I think it's good to remember that uh, when the Taliban was in charge during the 90s, which was a period roughly between uh, 1996 until 2001, until the U- United States intervention, Afghanistan was by far the war- you know the poorest country in the world. Uh, and the, the number one effect of western intervention in afghanistan was specifically that uh child mortality rates uh actually dropped you know they 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 dropped all uh, uh, by just such a such a large amount um and now we're seeing kind of that reversal again. The Taliban is again in power. The United States is exerting its its economic influence uh, uh, over over the country, and uh the United Nations, for example, cited uh, uh cited some statistics that said ninety eight percent of the Afghan population will have plunged into extreme poverty. uh So there there, there were some minor success stories in the, in the past twenty years, but what the economic strangulation of Afghanistan is is ensuring is that. Uh, that there's a huge brain drain, uh, that technocrats have left the country. Um, and the fact that um, the, the, the economy that even was built up, and, you know, we can sit here and, and have a very long, long conversation about what the, what the United States had built in those 20 years. It was very much dependent on on Western foreign aid, Uh, An economy that was not really sovereign or independent, uh, but even that economy is like now slowly uh, disappearing. So there's now we have a country where there is no future prospect for jobs, um, there is no middle class anymore. uh, And what we are seeing, uh, the the common stories that we are seeing now every day and every week um, is is, is that people are selling organs, you know, people are selling the liver or their kidneys. Uh, and able to be able to survive. And, you know, so I, I always tell the story of messages that I got in in the uh, beginning of August. Get me out of here. You know, how can I get on one of these evacuation planes? Uh, how can I get on a charter plane? How can I leave the country? Now the message is the same. I want to get out of here because not only is the Taliban in power, but me and my family are essentially starving to death. And to try to circumvent that, I mean, you know, the United States government has failed in many different ways and has, uh, you know, put this like really this deep level of harm on the Afghan people. But it really has placed the burden on on the Afghan diaspora, Afghan American uh, community organizations. Uh, you know, everyday Afghan Americans to to raise money to make a small dent in the in the lep- in the level of deprivation and starvation uh, that is happening uh, throughout Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Arash. I mean, it's, it's so troubling to hear. Before I move us on to another part of the conversation, I want to open this up because um, the impacts on the ground are very startling. And I know that we could all probably speak to this at length. Um, and I'm curious if any other panelists want to jump in on this point.
2: I, I do, I do. Um, I think one of the, the issues with the sanctions is they're silent killers. People die in their homes. Nobody's counting those deaths. So the U.S. and the international community um, are oblivion. And, and I don't think the U.S. is oblivion. The U.S. administration, they know what's happening. But first is we, there, there's no risk to the U.S. Uh, there is no opposition. If there is a war, you know, people get out to the streets and they riot. But when you have sanctions and people are dying in their homes and nobody's counting them, You can keep them for a long time and nobody is going to oppose you. So I think it's extremely important for people to understand uh, the the impact of these sanctions. Um, We wrote a paper in 2017 about the impact on the Yemeni population. Yemen has lost, by 2017, which is two years after the war and the blockade in Yemen, has lost 10 years of advancement in the health indicators in Yemen. Uh, So infant mortality was going up, uh, maternal mortality was going up, everything, you know, measles outbreaks, COVID outbreaks, the largest cholera outbreak in the world, everything. I mean, even diphtheria. Diphtheria, Yemen had not had diphtheria since 1980. And now we have, you know, probably the longest diphtheria outbreak. Uh, It's been going on for almost four or five years now. So and nobody's counting those deaths as a result of what I consider sanction as an an aggression on the civilian population. And so it's very important to educate the public about the impact of the sanctions on the civilians. And what for? For unattainable goals that are put on the elite of these countries. And I'll stop here.
0: Yeah, such incredible, important points there. And one of them being that, you know, there isn't really official government impact assessments on a lot of these regulations. And so, you you're hearing a lot of panelists describe that it's usually civil society that is undertaking these impact assessments. Um, And so that's quite disturbing that the U.S. government doesn't know or at least publicly admit what what the um, consequences of these policies are. Um, I, I want to quickly turn to Dr. Rob and ask, you know, so here we are, we're confronted with the, the impacts on the ground and that it is, the, you know, ordinary people bearing the costs. Why do we hear this narrative that sanctions are targeted now and that there are humanitarian exemptions? And that seems to sort of excuse and circumvent this idea that there is impact on the ground.
4: Oh, I mean, well, echoing on what Aisha said, Look, uh, why do we hear that? Because they have to say that that's the reality let's just like put it bluntly it's a pr tactic right if you say yes we know we're killing a bunch of civilians it doesn't sound as good when you use this tactic the reality of it is the and and for me the point of this conversation is, is to is to bring this um, out in terms of a conversation we hear the concept of ending endless war this is now ubiquitous in in us political discourse right uh whether it's a republican or a democrat by the way right president trump um, was outspoken against the disasters of, of wars in Iraq and wars in the Middle East. He he wanted to end endless wars. President Biden ran on a platform saying he wants to end endless war. In fact, that was the reason for withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. But Afghanistan is actually a perfect example. So we talk about ending endless war by withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. And yet in the wake of, and I'm not saying that troops should not have been withdrawn, but the economic policies that we've implemented potentially can cause more death than a 20 year war. What does it mean to end endless war? Yes, part of it from an American point of view is to not use our resources in a particular way. And Aisha brought this point up. She says, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't carry a cost. Now that's true to a certain extent. It's not totally true, right? And we're seeing that right now with the sanctions on Russia. We're seeing what happens when you have a global economy and when you try to sanction everyone to death and pretend like it's not going to affect the United States in any way. Um, There's a why do that? Why is the Biden administration using a phrase like Putin's price hike? Right when we sanction countries, just consider this sort of paradox when we sanction countries and those countries suffer, the civilians in those countries suffer. The US point of view is never, at least the US governmental official point of view, is never, it is our sanctions that are causing is causing civilian uh, deaths and suffering. It is the mismanagement and corruption of those very states. But when we, when Americans, when American working class are suffering under price hikes and inflation, somehow that's still someone else's fault. It's not it's not the US government's fault it's someone else's fault so so why we why the government why us officials frame things the way they do is why would they do it in, in any other situation. It's to never take responsibility or blame for any consequences that occur whether it's within our own domestic policies or whether it's policies abroad. But the reality of it is a conversation about ending endless war has to involve Economic warfare, economic policies—the entire point, the the moral point, at least. There's there's that right. There's the the sort of pragmatic, logistic point as an American as to why you can't just use this policy forever and think it's never going to have any kind of of uh, effect on yourself. But there's also the moral argument, right? The the moral argument of why sanctions were supposed to be used to begin with was that you know, an international community was created in the wake of world wars to say that we should avert the scourge of war. I think that in the in the preamble of the United Nations, it's like the first sentence, that's the entire concept. What can we do so that nation states do not fight each other because what happens? What was the purpose behind that? The casualties, the civilian costs, the human cost of those conflicts, that still exists under economic policies that starve people. It's just that it's not happening and it's certainly not being covered in US media to the same extent as, uh, as the consequences of direct warfare or bombs are. But that's why I bring up the example of Afghanistan. If more Afghans will possibly die in the wake of a war, what does that mean for that policy?
0: Yeah, extremely well said there. And I think, you know, North Korea certainly fits under that rubric as well in terms of endless war, right, being carried on by economic coercion. And Um, And I think it's also worth pointing out that, um, you know, under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act or IEPA, um, that really gives our Congress the authority to grant the president authorities, as far as I understand it, in terms of emergencies. And this has been used uh, in some cases for over 50 years to sanction a country. Now, it's really hard to make the case that an emergency can last 50 years. Um, And so there are some real problematic sort of underlying legality and and, uh, legal frameworks, I'll say. Um, I quickly point, turning to um, Dr. Rodriguez, um, I wanted to ask, you know, and I hope that you're okay answering this, but here in terms of the people on the ground in sanctioned countries, who are they placing blame on? Because oftentimes we hear the narrative from U.S. policymakers that, you know well, the country only has their leaders to blame for for these economic impacts, but where do the people in these uh, countries such as Venezuela where do they place blame, and how do they react to this? Right, I think you're on mute
3: Okay now, I think it's a very interesting question because i uh, the, the the first point that that I'd like to highlight is that. Um, I think people are capable of much more complex reasoning sometimes uh, than many U.S. policymakers think them capable of. Uh, I, one of the problems when one discusses the impact of sanctions is that what's a typical response that one will get from the U.S. administration is, "No, it's not the fault of sanctions. It's the fault of Maduro. Uh, Maduro is the one who's uh, to blame, and he's the only one to blame." Uh, and I, as an economist, uh, you know, when when I see Uh, a high ranking U.S. official answering this question, I I kind of asked myself, well, I mean, did this person actually take a course in multivariate statistics? I mean, do they understand that social phenomena have multiple causes uh, and that an economic crisis can be caused by, uh, the mistaken policies or the mismanagement or the corruption of regime and at the same time be impacted by sanctions? Well, it turns out that when you ask Venezuelans, they understand it perfectly well. I mean, they blame Maduro and they blame sanctions. Uh, they, when, If you uh, ask them, uh, who do you think is the, the person who's primarily responsible uh, for the country's economic conditions, they'll say Maduro. Uh, but if you ask them, have sanctions negatively impacted the economy and have sanctions made your life worse, they'll, they, will they'll definitely, And something that I want to point out about these surveys is that these are actually the same surveys. Uh, So you have surveys in which 75% of Venezuelans reject sanctions and only 10% support them. And these are actually the same surveys where 80% of Venezuelans disapprove of Maduro. Uh, so it's not that people are afraid to voice their opinion. At least uh, when a, an independent survey taker comes up to them and asks them, uh they, they'll say, Oh no, Maduro's a terrible precedent. Uh, this government's extremely corrupt. People will say all of these things uh to 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 survey takers. And at the same time, uh they'll tell them that uh that 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 they're against the sanctions, that sanctions have uh, hurt uh, Venezuela that they've hurt them personally, uh, and and by the way, that also means that uh, the disapproval of the U.S. government in Venezuela is just as high, if not higher, than that of Maduro. And the uh, the 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 ones who are in worse shape, believe it or not, are the Venezuelan opposition. So most recent surveys put Maduro at around 20% approval ratings, which is pretty low, Uh, but they put uh, most opposition leaders like Juan Guaido at around 10% approval ratings. And one of the main reasons is that Venezuelans blame them uh, for uh, seeking sanctions and for contributing to exacerbating the country's crisis. Uh, Or or in, in other words, if you're trying to convince voters that you are an alternative to the regime, the worst thing that you can do is Support policies that exacerbate their suffering. Um, I also wanted to 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 speak a little bit to to some of these legal questions that that you raised, which I think are really interesting because um, the today nowadays in current uh, uh, war crimes legislation uh, siege warfare that is uh, economically blocking a city or a country is considered a war crime, and the only reason that that is that sanctions are not considered a war crime is that they don't they don't occur during a war or in other words it didn't really occur to the people crafting this legislation that somebody would try to blockade an economy unless they were at war with them uh but but the the whole idea that you can direct policies at harming civilians and and we have u.s policymakers on record saying this uh that the reason why they imposed the sanctions on venezuela uh were so that the country would face uh, an economic crisis of such a magnitude that people would rebel against Maduro. Uh, so, um, so, I mean, it, it's it, to me there is a very strong legal case to be made uh, that uh, these actions are, are actions that uh, violate uh, ethical standards and violate existing international law. Uh, most of the sanctions that we're discussing, uh, with the exception perhaps of that, that those of North Korea, are not taken in the legal united nations framework which is the one that's set up uh for uh, adopting sanctions regime so they are in the case of venezuela uh remarkable because the us is the only country that has imposed economic sanctions on venezuela uh europe canada all other latin american nations they've said we're willing to impose personal sanctions but not economic sanctions, not sanctions that target the oil industry. Uh, And and this is is something in which, uh, and and in that case, uh, the Venezuelan case is similar, is similar to uh, the case of Iran, uh, where the US hasn't just said, uh, we're going to put these sanctions on persons in the regime. Uh, They have actually decided that they're going to target the capacity of the country to generate Uh, income to generate export revenue. And that obviously has an effect on the economy. So saying there are humanitarian exceptions which allow you to uh, purchase food, Uh, and medicines uh, for humanitarian ends um, and calling that a true humanitarian uh, exception, uh, that's really very, very disingenuous. I mean, that's kind of like telling someone that has just lost their job. Oh, but don't worry. You can buy anything that you want. I mean, you can go to a store and buy anything. Uh, Oh, you know, there's just that little small detail that you no longer have a paycheck uh, with which to pay for those items.
0: yeah incredibly important points there. and I think this you know this ethos or this thought process that you know if we put enough pressure on a country that they'll rebel and that there'll be regime change underlies a lot of these situations. And unfortunately, I think they're they're very um, misplaced. Um, one thing I'll quickly just add here to the conversation is that AFSC worked with Ipsos last year to run a, a public opinion poll and we found that actually the majority of Americans were supportive of lifting sanctions if they interfered with humanitarian aid. Uh, And COVID relief efforts. And I think that's probably the case across the board. So, um, you know, I think a lot of policymakers, some oftentimes I hear sort of, you know, whispered to us in between meetings is that nobody wants to look soft on a country like North Korea. And so they're unwilling to unwind some of these things, even though they know that it's an important concept and that it's You know, this is the right thing to do. So one thing that I would just love to underscore to these policymakers is the fact that, um, you know, the U.S. public is not gonna, um, you know, they're not gonna punish them at the polls for this. In fact, they probably reward them. Um, We're getting a little short on time and we do have 30 more minutes and we'll open it up to Q&A. But before we get there, I wanna open it up to our current panelists to see if there's any other points that they weren't able to get in that they really wanted to discuss. Okay, I'm going to drop. Oh, please.
4: Sorry, I was just going to say. I just wanted to echo what Dr. Rodriguez said, in in the sense that, and I think, and I wonder, Aisha Arash, if if you sense a similar kind of uh, phenomenon or pattern within um, your own diaspora communities, right? There's this idea that you can't criticize two things at the same time, and if if you, as an American, are criticizing U.S. policy, then um, ipso facto, you're supporting the other side. That's not what's happening. And there's such a frustration in dealing with that kind of a talking point because it's so disingenuous as if you cannot be critical of two things at the same time. And the reason why it's problematic is because it's just, you know, it's basic intuition, right? You're you're as a human being, anybody who's watching or listening, think about any, any, any way that you sort of interact, navigate your space in the world. You can find if if you see two people having a discussion or a debate, you can find fault with both. And and that's oftentimes what's happening. But because these the way that policymakers in the U.S. try to frame these debates is always by politicizing them. Right. it's, It's fascinating to me that there's this idea that, you know, we're supporting these populations by targeting them. And therefore, they will, you know, uh, stand up against these authoritarian regimes and and create regime change. And therefore, you know, these sort of like fantasies that we have yet to actually see happen. But constantly we talk about the potential of them happening. Um, How is it? I'll give you just one example and then we can move on. In the Iranian case right now, uh, we've seen how Iranian authorities have used Internet blackouts. Right. They shut down the Internet so the Iranians cannot communicate. U.S. sanctions exacerbate that problem there's part of the reason why or certain amounts of access that Iranians don't have to the internet is because of u.s sanctions. so when when you want to talk about helping or supporting a group of people, maybe helping them getting on the internet and, and not in, again not exacerbating existing problems is is a better policy method to go forward rather than intentionally exacerbating problems because you think that'll sort of foment the, this this fantasy of, of regime change that again I would love to see an example of. I've yet to see this bloodless coup that occurs that brings uh, that brings this whatever policies that we're talking about. Not to mention the, and we haven't talked about this and so I'll just mention it briefly, but not to mention the fact that those policies are not applied to everyone. There's complete double standards. If you look at every state that we're representing, right, There's there are other states that carry out very similar types of crimes or human rights abuses or anything we're talking about where we justify sanctions on these particular targeted countries. And yet those states never get sanctioned. I don't even have to point out which states they are because anybody watching probably knows that. So the fact that not only are we targeting civilians under this like politicized concept that we're actually trying to help them, but that we're not applying the same standard by which we sanction certain countries to countries that are not our adversaries, but our friends.
0: Yeah, excellent
2: points. Yeah, Dr. Juma, yeah. I, I, I also want to support uh, Asal in what she said. In, I visited Yemen in September, October of, of last year, and you know the majority of people in Yemen actually um, are you know feel the U.S. is their is the main cause of the economic uh, you know problems in Yemen and, and, and the war. Although in, in in this case in Yemen, uh, the U.S. is supporting the Saudi led coalition. Yet, if, if you look at the artwork in the, in the cities, if you talk to people, if you do surveys, the majority of people call it the American war and the American sanctions. So, um, And, and they, they do understand. Uh, so in, 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 in Yemen also, I, unfortunately, in a sense that it galvanized the population um, in, a national, in a nationalistic way, uh, you know, for the group that the U.S. is, is fighting and, and the Saudis are fighting.
0: Yeah, thank you for those points. And, you know, I'll just point out that, especially in the case of North Korea, we often hear when we talk about the issues of sanctions, um, the, the idea, the notions of human rights are brought in. And the idea that, you know, we shouldn't undo sanctions because of human rights violations happening in the country. What's really difficult for me to understand about that argument is the the fact that these are violating human rights. They are against international law. And how can you argue for civil and political rights while people are starving and facing very severe issues? Um, So it's very difficult. Um, I quickly, I want to turn, we have a surprise guest, actually. Uh, And this is quite quite timely because uh, he's going to give us an overview of what's happening with Cuba uh, we have, we're joined by Ricardo Herrero, uh, and he's the executive director of the Cuba Study Group. He manages the organization's initiatives and educates policymakers on policies that improve the well being of the Cuban people, both at home and in the diaspora. Ricardo is a strategic communications and public affairs professional with close to two decades of experience working at the intersection of international relations, law, politics, media, and philanthropy. Uh, Welcome, Ricardo, Uh, we're wondering if you could give us a quick maybe three to five minute introduction around what's happening with Cuba.
5: Sure, thank you for inviting me today. I've been here off camera just nodding so hard at everything that I've been hearing, just so many commonalities uh, between all our different cases. Uh, You know, we were talking about, uh, Arash started talking about endless wars, um, and, you know, Cuba's sort of the quintessential case of endless sanctions. Um, as, uh, as many might know, but I'll, I'll walk, I'll try to run through the history, comprehensive trade and an economic embargo was first imposed on Cuba by the United States in 1960s uh, at the start of the Cuban Revolution, led by Fidel Castro of uh, uh, Cuban assets in the United States were frozen and we blocked all export and imports to and from Cuba. That embargo. Uh, and all the sanctions that comprised that embargo were repurposed in the 1990s after the end of the Cold War, after the fall of the Soviet Union, in an attempt to try to tighten the screws around the Castro regime to try to finally bring them down. Uh, those sanctions were repurposed under legislation that codified them into law and then conditioned their lifting on a series of all or nothing demands, very unrealistic demands, that would amount to essentially the Cuban government relinquishing power and changing their system all by their own accord. Uh, it was a regime change, it, it was a series of regime change laws, most notably the Helms-Burton Act in 1996, but then we also saw the Cuban Democracy Act of uh, 1992, a couple of years before, and then the Trade Sanctions Reform Act of 2000 that imposed uh, a travel ban to Cuba. Uh, you fast forward to the Obama years, Uh, where through uh, the president's executive authority, uh, we saw opening towards Cuba. Obama reopened embassies that were shut down uh, 50 years prior at the start of the revolution, uh, and then started uh, implementing all sorts of exceptions to the embargo through the licensing authority of the executive um, that nonetheless have to stay consistent to the spirit of the laws that codified the embargo. Uh, and as well as uh, lifting Cuba from the state sponsors of terrorists, which they had been added to in the 1980s. Then the, then we go into the seesaw uh, pattern where Trump gets elected in 2016. He starts uh, reversing the, the Obama opening in 2017 uh, and then really kicks that reversal into high gear uh, in 2019 and. Um, under a policy of maximum pressure, which we know was also imposed against Iran, against Venezuela, in the Cuban case, it was ostensibly because of Cuba's support for Venezuela, um, but it really was also an extension of Trump electoral uh, strategy in South in, in South Florida for the year 2020. It was a constant drip, drip of, of sanctions that were being announced on a weekly basis. A lot of this included sh- shutting down uh, consular services all sorts of visas being uh, issued out of uh, Havana, most travel to Cuba and adding Cuba back to the State sponsors of terror list. Furthermore, Trump also tightened sanctions during the COVID pandemic. uh, And uh, in the process, shutting down, his administration shut down all formal remittance channels to Cuba. Uh, Sanctions during this uh, time have aggravated the multiple crises plaguing uh, this, uh, this country, economic crisis, humanitarian crisis, political crisis, uh, and have contributed in most recent months to the mass exodus out of Cuba uh, that most recently led to uh, 35,000 Cubans uh, making it to the U.S.-Mexico border in the month of April alone. In the month of March, it was 32,000. We are now on course for the fiscal year of 2022 uh, to exceed the number of Cubans that um, left the island um, during the Mariel boatlift of 1980. Uh, at that year, it was 125,000. By now, we've probably exceeded that number. Uh, we're waiting to see the main numbers. Now, in the last couple of months, however, we have seen the Biden administration start announcing a series of measures, most notably. Uh, last week to reverse several Trump era sanctions imposed on Cuba and start turning the page on this maximum pressure policy. We saw uh, they announced a restoration of full consular services at the U.S. embassy in Havana. We saw both governments hold high level uh, direct uh, migration talks uh, and uh, the United States commit to starting to issue uh, 20,000 immigrant visas that it had originally agreed to uh, start uh, issuing during 1994 migratory accords between the two governments. It also is reinstating the Cuban family reunification program, which was a, uh, a program implemented during the W. Bush administration to help uh, to to allow Cubans here in the United States to claim their family members. Uh, still living in the country. We're seeing the expansion of authorized travel, commercial and charter flight to provinces uh, uh, beyond Havana. There's another nine international airports throughout the length of Cuba. You are gonna see now travel has been reopened to those provinces after it was shut down by Trump. Trump, uh, You're also seeing uh, the authorization of expanded access for Cuban entrepreneurs to cloud technology Payment transfer app, 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 applications and other e-commerce platforms. It's going to be very interesting to see, with current banking sanctions, how these uh, sanctions, how these uh, platforms and uh, online tools are actually made accessible to entrepreneurs in Cuba. But it's it's heartening to know that this has become a priority for the administration. Um, and we're also seeing. Uh, declared uh, intent to expand access for entrepreneurs to microfinancing and and training, as well as lifting all remittance uh, limits imposed by uh, the Trump administration. Um, Obviously, the animating factor here for all these measures has been the the migratory crisis that I mentioned earlier. The Biden administration had been largely dragging its feet on reversing much of this policy. Uh, even though it had promised to do so during uh, the president's campaign. Um, I would note that the good thing that we can immediately identify in in some of these measures taken by the Biden administration is that they are consistent with the Treasury Department's new framework uh, for more closely linking sanctions to policy objectives. Uh, We saw this uh, announced back in October of last year after a comprehensive review of all sanctions programs that Treasury announced it wanted to moving forward uh, be much more intentional and proactive in linking sanctions and how sanctions are implemented to advance specific policy objectives, to be more strategic, to be more targeted, to reduce collateral damage or in any way uh, or or reduce their impact on humanitarian aid. Um, And so here we're seeing it Uh, in two two instances. We're seeing it in in the addressing of the migratory crisis by reopening uh, the consular services and issuing uh, immigrant visas to Cubans, and as well as in tweaking current um, OFAC regulations to help strengthen the Cuban people and particularly the Cuban private sector by providing them access to microfinancing and uh, those other uh, uh, cloud-based platforms that I mentioned. However, The bad part of of all this is that these measures, um, as they are executive orders, are reversible. Uh, These measures are largely license uh, exceptions, general license exceptions to sanctions that have been codified under law. And these laws as written do not allow for any sunset clauses, do not allow for any annual reporting requirements of Congress, or for any provisions whatsoever to really mitigate their ham- the harmful impact on humanitarian aid and th- that impact on innocent Cubans on the ground. So ultimately for us to see a real correction or a real reform in uh, san- our sanctions policy towards Cuba, as is the case for many other countries, it's gonna require legislative action because otherwise we're gonna continue seeing sanctions imposed removed and again this constant ping pong from one administration towards the other in efforts to try to cater to domestic interests and and voting blocks here in the united states
0: yeah wonderful thank you so much for that context uh, it is encouraging to hear that these steps are being taken in cuba and of course we'd like to see them implemented in other contexts as well as you said the treasury department has committed to some of these things um, but we're only seeing it bubble up in certain contexts. So, you know, I, I'm hoping that that changes. We're running a little bit short on time, so I want to kind of move us into the, the audience Q&A session. And Ricardo, I'm hoping you can stick around because it would be lovely to, to get into that conversation uh, in more depth. Um, one of the first questions we got here I thought was really important. Maraf um, asked, uh, essentially, you know, <laughs> uh, what are the long-term solutions here? What are the alternatives to sanctions? Um, I'll open it up to panelists if they have thoughts on this.
5: I, I mean, I could say, well, I think the biggest problem with sanctions is, as as uh, Dr. Rod was mentioning earlier. Um, you know, we have this ongoing conversation about ending endless wars, and I think it's it's a conversation that's become very diverse and multifaceted, and it's and and it's maturing in many ways. The conversation about sanction around sanctions is much more uh, primeval. It's basically um, imposing sanctions strong, removing sanctions weak. And that's it, that's the, that's, the, that's the conversation. Anytime you look and you a government even considers lifting sanctions as counterproductive as they may be, it's perceived as being weak on a uh, authoritarian regime. And we need to move past that. Um, and un- unfortunately, there is a lack of political will to move beyond that because of the fear of being characterized as being, uh, be, as being weak on some of these bad actors abroad so part of it is I recognizing that look sanctions are a very imperfect tool we've seen study after study where they show that they work 20 percent of the time these days yet where it's become the tool of first resort uh, the weapon of first resort in u.s foreign policy making so we need to just have a much more honest conversation about sanctions their impact their 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 their, their efficacy their impact on innocent populations, The magical thinking behind this idea that by tightening sanctions or imposing blanket sanctions on a population, they're going to want to rise up against their rulers, overthrow them, and democracy will rise from the ashes like a phoenix from the flame. We need to really just disabuse people of that idea because, as Dr. Rod mentioned earlier, we've yet to see a case of it actually happening. And then talking about how can we reform our sanctions programs to be much more targeted, much more strategic, and mitigate all the collateral damage and negative impacts of these sanctions. Uh, But it has to be, it has to lead to ultimately to legislation, because that's the only way that you can sort of set some real guardrails around this.
2: I actually, um, thank you, uh, Ricardo. I have a few points on that. One who appointed the U.S., the policemen of the world, where it decides who's sanctioned, who's not sanctioned. There are many authoritarian regimes that are friends of the U.S. government that are never sanctioned, no matter how many abuses of human rights uh, they, they conduct. And I, I'll just name one, Saudi Arabia, because it's leading a war on the Yemeni people. Uh, so why should the U.S. be the one determining that? Um, that's one thing. The other one, I will go back to what Dr. Rodriguez said, is that sanctions in the absence of war and blockades and sieges are actually against international law. So, and I hope, Dr. Rodriguez, that you can say something to that effect.
3: Yeah. Um, no, totally. I, mean, I, I, I think that... Uh, First of all, um, we have to understand that there are problems that the international community wants to solve, uh, which aren't necessarily easy to solve. Um, and that does not mean that they imply a justification for targeting civilians. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, if the, 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 I mean, one can think of many examples or analogies uh, in which uh, you know, if you have uh, somebody who's carrying out kind of criminal activity, uh, well, does that give the state the right to kidnap their family and threaten their family uh, so that the criminal will give up? And the the reality is that that is a violation. That's a heinous violation of the human rights uh, of uh, of people who, in this example, would be the criminal families. Well, same thing happens here. And the, the why should you be targeting innocent Venezuelans, and particularly with sanctions that uh, end up having the strongest effect on the most vulnerable groups, or innocent Iranians, or Afghanis, or Yemenis, uh, because of what their governments are doing. This is just not a a tool that should be under consideration, um, that period. Now, uh, the international community has to deal with these governments with the tools that are at its disposal. Uh, And those tools involve diplomatic pressure. I believe that those tools uh, should involve Uh, adequately targeted personal sanctions, which are different from economic sanctions, uh, as long as those sanctions are designed so as to protect civilians from their collateral effects. Because what we've seen is that even the use of personal sanctions can generate through overcompliance and by toxifying the relations with an economy, it can generate significant consequences on the economy and on civilians. Uh, But I do think that there's a legitimate use for some types of sanctions, as long as... Uh, you are taking steps to ensure that uh, they do not produce a significant collateral effect on civilians or uh, on the most vulnerable groups. Now, I also think that there are several of these cases uh, in which uh, there is a much more sensible approach. Now, there's no one size fits all. So uh, negotiation uh, and uh, dialogue between the parts to the political conflict, I think, is the solution in Venezuela. It may not be the solution in North Korea, because among other things, uh, the type of problems that you're dealing with in North Korea are, are, are different, and they really have to do with uh nuclear non-proliferation a decision by the international community that's going to limit access to nuclear weapons so that's that that i think is, is a completely different problem than that of a country that was democratic, where there was significant democratic backsliding, and those democratic uh, institutions deteriorated, and the international community wants to do something about it. Can the international community do something about it, and should it do something about it? Yes, I think, but within the acceptable means of, of diplomatic pressure and the type of pressure that does not affect civilians. But but also, I think that if you, if you take a closer look at what's happening in Venezuela, uh, what you see is a a deep and protracted confrontation between two political groups that are aiming to take control of the state, uh, and which, when they have had control of the state, um both of them have acted with uh complete disregard for the well-being of civilians. And that's that's how you can see I, I and mean, it's you, you can identify that in some of the actions of the opposition when it briefly uh, was able to grab power through a 2002 coup. Uh, But you can also see that in some of the actions of the current opposition leadership. Uh, So uh, what, what I believe that the international community has to do is number one, Uh, try to support a framework where these two sides can negotiate a coexistence agreement and can negotiate even rules of engagement for their own political conflict that do not severely affect Venezuelans and vulnerable Venezuelans, but also uh, support a framework in which Uh, Other groups that are representative of Venezuelans and that do not feel represented by these political actors can be involved. So I think that if you had broader negotiations in Venezuela, in Venezuela, the U.S. has supported this idea that negotiations are only between Maduro and Guaido. And it turns out that 80 percent of Venezuelans don't feel represented by Maduro and Guaido. Even in recent regional elections, uh, the Guaido's parties, the parties that back Guaido, received only 40 percent of the votes cast against the government. So 60% of non-government votes went to other opposition parties, which the government, which the US insists are not relevant political actors. There's civil society, there's the church, there's a the business sector, uh, there are human rights organizations, there are humanitarian organizations. So if you if you broaden the space uh for a dialogue that's truly representative of society, I think that you're going to get more stable agreements and you're going to uh to get the basis for uh, this country to actually frame uh, a, a coexistence arrangement, which is what's necessary for it to get out of of this economically destructive political conflict that it's trapped in.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like I'm hearing. Oh, yeah. Dr. Rod, do you want to get in really
4: quick? I was just going to add. Um you know, I think one of the sort of like threads that you can draw from what everyone is saying is, look, if, if sanctions are, are meant to be a tool of accountability, right? That's, that's how they are, that's how we d- discuss them. They're meant to target bad actors because what, what does it even mean to be a bad actor? They're, you know, they're breaking with international law. Um, they're uh, committing human rights abuses. I said earlier, the fact that that there, and Aisha also commented, you know, this is not actually being applied um, consistently, and what that really makes us think about what what do we do and if this is the problem the original question was like what do we do then as an alternative? Um, I think first of all, it's having these conversations right and, and Ricardo pointed to this it's like well we're not no one really even talks about this that much because it's not in it, it's it's not as um, sort of obvious uh, an issue as a war is. But it has. Con- we talked about the fact that it has consequences for the U.S., it has consequences for the civilian population, and in fact, they're not really effective. So think about that. Think about any policy that you have that hurts civilians, don't work, and hurt domestically the country that you're in. It's insane that we continue to have those policies, but it's because we're not having real conversations of what the reality of that policy is. It is a tool Of US empire. That's just what it is. And you have to be able to talk about it in an honest fashion if we are going to move forward and in talking about it in any other way. Um, If it was a tool of accountability, right now you have uh, Russia sanctions, the number one sanctioned country in the world because of its illegal invasion of Ukraine, no doubt. Was there an equivalent reaction to when the US invaded Iraq? No, because the US can't be sanctioned in the same way. The fact that it's a unilateral tool that can be used in this manner, makes it an imbalanced tool. So if we want to think about, well, what is the solution? We have to look at those international institutions that are deeply flawed and don't work because the most powerful countries don't allow them to work. And that speaks to what Dr. Rodriguez was saying as well. We have to look at approaches that actually use diplomatic means to solve an issue. And if I'm talking about the Iranian side, if that's my, you know, sort of the, the the country that I'm discussing in this particular situation, we did that, right? We know that it works. We used diplomacy as a tool, diplomatic solution with the with the JCPOA to resolve an issue that the global community thought was important, such as non-proliferation. Iran abided by that, by that agreement. And who was the party? that withdrew? Who was the party that quit? Who was the party that violated by reimposing sanctions? The US. And so we have to be able, especially as Americans, when we're having these conversations in the United States, to hold our own officials accountable when they are not using those tools correctly, when they're using those tools in a way that are to the detriment of civilian populations, that are to the detriment of the American population, and that are ineffective.
0: Wonderfully said, and I'm, I'm glad you jumped in because I think that intervention actually asked our, our next question, which is why do sanctions continue to be used if they are so ineffective? Um, and I just want to quickly sort of emphasize a couple of points there, which is, it, it sounds like what we're saying is there there one needs to be a change in mindset. This understanding that sanctions are somehow strength and that somehow hurting the most vulnerable is a show of strength is obviously flawed. And, you know, I always point to the word authority it comes from actoritas and actoritas in Latin meant to influence through character. And if we really wanna influence and change people's behavior, we have to start modeling that behavior ourselves. And I really wanna agree with Dr. Rodriguez in terms of uh, sort of redefining what we mean by diplomacy. And actually in North Korea, the, the, the solution, at least in my mind really is dialogue, right? It is redefining diplomacy because when you talk about Um, conducting diplomacy with the State Department, their version of that is getting other countries to comply with U.S. unilateral sanctions. That to me is not diplomacy, that's coercion. And just a final point on this, uh, AFSC and the National Committee on American Foreign Policy undertook an exhaustive research study on U.S.-China official dialogue processes. The conversation in Washington right now is that U.S.-China dialogue failed, um, mainly because China didn't change its behavior. But in fact, we went back and we looked at over a thousand commitments that the two countries made to each other. And actually, China followed through more often than the United States. And it was critical to things like climate change mitigation, stabilizing the global economy after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, uh, and as well as handling global pandemics. And all of that was dismantled prior to COVID-19 pandemic. So in in a way, we're we're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot and we're putting real tools that we have away uh, under this rubric of showing strength. Uh, I'll I'll stop there. And I want to end with this final question here, which I think is really important. Um, Somebody asked, you know, in the face of sanctions, and I'm going to rephrase this slightly, what can the, the individuals in sanctioned countries do
2: about this? perhaps a difficult question to answer, but.
5: I, I could try to answer this question. It's a very difficult question. Uh, on the Cuban context, I can tell you, we've seen this uh, happen now over the course of the last couple of years where situ- the c- conditions on the ground have gotten so desperate, in large part because of the mismanagement of the Cuban government, uh, that many on the ground, even though they know that sanctions uh, are, aggravate hardships on the ground, exacerbate the conditions on the ground. They don't even want to talk about sanctions because they're so fed up with their own government. And so they, since the government is always blaming everything on on U.S. sanctions, they use it as the ultimate scapegoat for all their failings. You see people are, the response that they're having is basically saying, well, if the government's always talking about sanctions, I'm not going to talk about the sanctions. I'm just going to talk about the government because they're they're the direct cause of most of my misfortunes. I think... What the only word of advice I would have to, to, for those folks it's keep the conversation ample. If both things are adding to hardships on the ground, recognize both, you're not doing anybody any favors by ignoring one and only focusing on the other. Both of them are exacerbating negative conditions on the ground, both of them are compounding hardships for innocent civilians on the ground. Both, they both need to be recognized as such.
0: Thank you for that. And, and just quickly to wrap us up, I was curious, Dr. Juman, were you trying to make a quick point as well?
2: Yeah, I, I think at least with the Yemeni people, they've been, you know, doing a lot of videos to show the impact. And and I think it's it's our job, especially those who are in the U.S. and yes, is to let the American public understand the impact of sanctions, uh, because they, a lot of people don't understand the impact of, of sanctions. Um, and as I said. It, silent killers. So as as we educate everybody of the impact, uh, hopefully that will translate into reaching out to our representatives and our congressional people to say, you know, this cannot
3: happen.
0: Yeah, lifting up their voices is so important. Dr. Rodriguez, we'll give you the final word here.
3: Yeah, no, I'd like to point out that um, I think it's really important to focus on the policy debate In the countries that are imposing these sanctions, because in the end, it is the governments of uh, these countries and particularly the government of the United States that's doing it. And one of the things that's happened uh, in uh, particularly in the cases of Cuba and Venezuela uh, is that the groups that are most mobilized uh, in order to try to affect these policies are actually uh, diaspora groups that are very hardline opposition uh, and want to maintain and even toughen sanctions. These groups are not necessarily representative even of how all migrants think, even of how all Venezuelan or Cuban migrants in the the U.S. think. but they're very organized. Uh, They're also located in a pivotal state, uh, which is Florida, uh, and they know how to use that capacity of mobilization to to, to affect U.S. politics. Uh, So that's why I do think that it makes sense to bring this debate into the US policy arena and uh when i've seen US legislators for example the legislators that the 18 legislators uh that recently sent a letter to president biden uh or when i've seen representatives for example ask the question direct questions of us uh, uh government officials about uh, the impact of sanctions uh i think that that plays a key role if you if you if you look at the case of iraq sanctions for example uh iraq sh- sanctions were having a significant adverse effect on the humanitarian situation and were leading to large increases in infant mortality. And it was only when Secretary Albright was actually grilled about this on a 60 Minutes program uh, that the US began rethinking. It was such a deep embarrassment to her uh, that she didn't know how to answer the question of, well, sanctions have led to 50,000 deaths of children in Iraq, is that worth it, Uh, that that forced Uh, the U.S. government to completely rethink uh, sanctions. And there they introduced the Iraqi oil for food program, which despite all all of its shortcomings, uh, had a significantly positive effect on the capacity of the country to generate the oil revenue that it needed uh, in order to deal with its humanitarian situation. And there's strong evidence that uh, humanitarian conditions in Iraq uh, improved significantly as a result result of that program. Uh, But it has to come from debate in the countries that are setting the policies uh, and it has to come from having an answer if the only voice that's speaking is the voice of the hardline diaspora groups that are saying well these are evil people and sanctions should be imposed on them well if that's the only thing that people hear uh, then obviously that's going to affect policy debate uh, if we can tell the other side of the story then i think that we can have a more balanced policy discussion
0: yeah, thank you. And I think that's a great point to leave it on. As you can see, there's a lot more to discuss. Maybe we should have a part two, part three, maybe all the way to part 10, because I think our agenda is like bursting at the seams and there's a lot of synergy here. Um, I just really quickly wanna thank everybody who tuned in for our conversation today, NIAC and all of our panelists for all their contributions. This is a wonderful conversation. And I think we'll have to continue it on from here because there's much more to discuss. Thank you to everybody and um, We'll, uh, we'll see you hopefully at the next conversation.